Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormady, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 24 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to have Timothy W. Lyons, Distinguished Professor of Biogeochemistry at the University of California, Riverside, as my featured guest. As Director of the University's Alternative Earths Astrobiology Center, Lyons currently leads the Alternative Earths team of the NASA Astrobiology Institute, a fellow of the Geological Society of America and the American Geophysical Union, Lyons received his Ph.D. in Geology and Geochemistry from Yale University. His research interests include astrobiology, geobiology, Earth history, and the search for life beyond our solar system. But today, we'll be focusing primarily on the history of oxygen on Earth and why it's likely so crucial to life in the cosmos. Lyons joins us from Riverside in California. Tim, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, first off, let's review a bit of Earth history. When did Earth actually form? Well, the, the best estimates, and they're, and they're pretty well-accepted estimates, uh, that the Earth is about 4.54 billion years old. And we, we know that with some confidence because we can date meteorites that uh, formed at the same time. Uh, we also have some techniques where we can extrapolate isotope data back to the beginnings of our planet. Um, and then, most remarkably, within the past 20 years or so, we're actually dating Earth materials, including some material found on the Moon, <laughs> ironically, that, um, that date back almost to the beginning of what we think are uh, when our planet started. So uh, there are grains of sand grains on Earth that have been dated at 4.4 billion years old now. So this age, if you want to go with about four and a half billion years, is, is well accepted. Paint a picture of how we went from uh, a nascent planet with magma oceans to a planet that had uh, liquid water oceans and a crude atmosphere. Yeah, well, the, you know, the, the, this first half a billion years of Earth history is referred to as the Hadean, which comes from Hades, because the Earth was assumed to have been very hellish at that time. Um, and um, among the characteristics of that hellish Earth, and you can see images by artists of this, of these vast, what we call magma oceans, that's literally molten rock. You could call it lava as well, because it's at the surface. Um, and so it would have been a surface that was extremely hot and would have precluded any accumulation of liquid water. And then we know also that within the first 100 million years of our origins, that we were hit by a very large object, um, Mars-sized by some estimates, that gave rise to our moon. Um, so the clock sort of starts in terms of the beginnings of life after that moon-forming impact. And by then, um, many of the estimates suggest that the abundance of magma oceans at the surface really dropped off. Um, and so the Earth was cooling. Um, remember, a lot of the heat comes from the original accretion of the planets, and so that heat is tapering off. Also, heat comes from radioactive decay, so progressively the Earth has been cooling. And one of the striking things that has been discovered in recent years is that Earth cooled much quicker than people imagined. And so rather than being hell-like for half a billion years, it may have been hell-like for less than 100 million years. And many forms of data now point to the possibility of temperatures at Earth's surface much more like those we have today than anything that was, was steamy and burny and hellish-like. And, um, and there has been, among these remarkable discoveries, analyses of these small grains that I mentioned already that give us some, some sense of the antiquity of the Earth. Analysis of those grains looking at oxygen isotopes, in, uh, more specifically, they're called zircon grains, and they're found most famously in northwestern Australia. They date back to about 4.3 to 4.4 billion years ago. And the oxygen isotopes within this zirconium silicate mineral suggests that um, very early in Earth history, we had seafloor, hot seafloor, interacting with liquid water. Um, and so it, there were these interactions going on at, uh, at actually fairly low temperature because the surface had cooled at that point. 
and gave rise to these oxygen compositions that eventually ended up in these little zircon grains that found their way into rocks that we collect from from northwestern Australia. Again, those data suggest okay. that we had liquid water probably at about 4.3, if not a little bit earlier, billion years ago. 4.3 billion years ago, liquid water. That's it. That's incredible. So it is incredible. It's completely rewritten the story, right? So the whole idea of how life began and and how we got to where we are today, the whole clock was reset by this idea that things may have been very habitable very early in Earth history. So in other words, literally 200 million years after Earth's formation, after its magma ocean uh, era. We had liquid oceans. You had liquid oceans. And you have evidence, you have some evidence of this from the Pilbara region of Northwest Australia. Is that, is that, is that how you pronounce that? It, the Pilbara, yep. Pilbara, um, okay. These zircon, these zircon grains are now be, being found in other places, but most famously they were found in, in, the, in the Pilbara. And they're actually found in, in rocks that are younger. But what you have to imagine is that very early in, in Earth history, these zircon grains, and they're very, very recalcitrant, we say. They're very strongly resistant to alteration. And so they can lock in a composition and preserve that for very long periods of time, including their, their age, the ability to date them. And so these things formed very early, and then, like happens today, you know, there was uplift and erosion, and, and streams brought sediments to the ocean, and so these grains were actually what we call detrital zircons. They're found in younger rocks, but we can date these microscopic grains individually to their origins, to their 4.3 to 4.4 billion year old ages. And from those ages, we can then extrapolate what conditions of the Earth's surface might have been like because of the compositions of those grains. So it's really, it's been one of the big discoveries in, in the field that I'm part of. And it started just about two decades ago, and the work continues. And as I said, or I suggested, I think the, the, it's, it's held up. Um, and so there's a pretty wide acceptance now that we had a much more habitable early Earth than, than was previously imagined. I'll add one other thing to that, that you have to remember that the sun was only 70% as bright as it is today back then. And so there would be every reason to imagine that not only could you have had hot conditions, but you could have had very cold conditions because the sun was not generating the same energy that it is today. And so something I think we'll probably talk about more is the composition of that early atmosphere and what it must have been like to, to, through greenhouse warming effects actually, to maintain enough heat at the Earth's surface to allow liquid water to develop. So it's been this remarkable sort of combination of discoveries in the face of a cooling Earth and, and warming sun and evolving atmospheric composition that we developed a habitable planet um, very close to our beginnings and that we maintain that habitability for all of our history. And that very much informs, and we'll talk about this later probably, very much informs our understanding of, of habitability on other planets. Okay, um, so now like what, uh, but what about the Pilbara region of, uh, of Northwest Australia that has enabled this magnificent uh, geological record? Well, it is extraordinary. And anybody who works on early Earth history has spent time in the Pilbara for one reason or another. It has the oldest and best examples of many, many things that will come up further in our discussions or come up later in our discussions. Um, the main reason is that they're very old rocks and they're very well preserved. And so the Australian continent hasn't experienced the same level of tectonic overprinting, which um, has, the, has the, the bad effect of, of, of destroying rocks through metamorphic overprints, through pressure and temperature and through mountains being uplifted and the erosion of those rocks. This portion, this terrain of northwestern Australia has been spared most of those offenses. And so the rocks are preserved, they're intact, and in many cases, the degree of alteration from heat and pressure is very low. And so it's like, it's like um, you know, it's like the, the, the pot at the end of the rainbow for people who want to collect very old samples and make inferences about the evolution of early Earth environments and life. And what do you mean by the term overprinting? Well, overprinting is a, is a kind of alteration. Remember, we have a really old planet, right? So it, it's one of the first things you have to learn as a geologist is how to think about time, that fourth dimension. And a lot of things can happen in four and a half plus billion years. And so we develop plate tectonics, and so continents are colliding, and material is being subducted into the Earth's interior. 
and areas are being uplifted and eroded and all of these tectonic processes one flavor or another tend to take original rocks and change them and so the process of metamorphism is a solid state transformation from one rock type to a fundamentally different rock type or the rocks can be melted and a sedimentary rock may end up later being an igneous rock because it was melted into magma and lava and extruded at the earth's surface and these things happen all the time and so it's it's rare to find windows of of ancient history where the rocks are so old and are datable and are so well preserved. Another area where we get information like this is from, um, from South Africa. And there are also wonderful terrains in Northern Canada. There are these windows, but the one in the Pilbara is particularly good. So what about the zircons? Because you, you mentioned the zircons were important in, in determining this information. Can you explain exactly what zircons are and how you use them? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a zirconium silicate mineral. So silic, silicate means silicon and oxygen in combination with the, with the element zirconium. And uh, it's, it's a pretty common mineral. Um, it's actually used as a gemstone when it's particularly clear and large uh-huh. and well crystallized. And, and, and so these detrital grains are, are these, these zircon grains are, 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 are these little, little limpid crystals, or sometimes they have inclusions or zonations in them. And you can even get some history from that zonation, but basically the way they form, um, and, and, and this is a complicated story and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but imagine initially that the water is interacting with the rock. Um, at relatively low temperature on the seafloor. And then through a number of different possible processes, that seafloor is then transformed into a different kind of rock. It's called differentiation. So you, so the, the different rocks have different compositions. And seafloor is something we call mafic. It has a lot of iron in it. It has a lot of magnesium in it. Granite that makes up the continents, and we can see that all around here in Southern California, tends to have a lot of silicon and a lot of oxygen, and it has less iron and less magnesium. And so one of the things we study when we study the earth is how you go from one rock type to another. And so in going from from seafloor with all the iron and magnesium dense minerals to the granite type rocks, something we call felsic rocks, um, you're processing these through a a variety of of melting and and, and partial partial melting and, and something we call fractional crystallization. When rocks melt, certain minerals come out first and other ones are preserved. And that's a complicated story, but the simple idea is that you get differentiation. And so you can convert one rock type to another. And that was really the final step in generating these zircons, that you took seafloor and through that process of differentiation, maybe involving plate tectonics, you generated rocks that are more familiar to us who look at mountain ranges um, around the world, granite type rocks. And those very often have zircons associated with them. And so those zircons not only imply this ocean, but they also imply some kind of tectonic process, uh, it could even be related to an impact, but some kind of process that's melting and differentiating and generating a different kind of rock that has these zircons. And then they weather out and they're transported. But the key thing to remember about them is that they're very strong minerals. So they have the ability to avoid those overprints and they can be transported and buried and eroded again and transported and bring with them like a vault their ancient histories, their archives of what was going on during the earliest chapters of their own histories. And um, so what, the, the, as you just said, the, the, the history of the earliest Earth, the Hadean period, has kind of been rewritten in the last generation. If I if I'm not here if I'm hearing you correctly, that that's true. Okay, I would say that's true. Yeah. So what caused the uh, the magma to cool so quickly and uh, to allow these uh, these early oceans to form? Well, because as I, I was saying before, you know, you have a lot of initial heat associated with accretion, um, and you have a very high amount of heat generated because there's a lot of radioactive material, and that tapers off exponentially through Earth history. We're still generating a lot of heat in our interior because of radioactive decay. That's where most of it comes from. Um, we have a liquid outer core. We have a tremendous heat within the planet's interior, and a lot of that comes from radioactive decay. Um, and so there would have been a lot of heat being generated and, and inherited from the accretionary process. Um, but 
but that heat was was lost from the interior in ways that were really more rapid than people imagined. Um, you can have heat rising. Heat always rises. We get this process of convection like a boiling pot. And so heat rises towards the surface and cooler material sinks. And so that transfer of excess heat to the surface and then ultimately loss from Earth's surface uh, was much more efficient and much more rapid than people would have originally imagined. And was that early water? Did it come from the interior of the Earth itself, or was it delivered uh, via asteroidal impact? Well, that's a really great question, and you'll read papers that are still debating that. Um, there are a variety of geochemical techniques that allow us to fingerprint some of those things. There was a, a popular view, there is a popular view of, of large uh, of large water delivery associated with comets, uh, which have large amounts of water associated with them. Um, there certainly was a lot of water that the Earth inherited during its initial accretion. Also, light elements tend to concentrate in the outer solar system beyond something called the snow line or frost line. And so one portion of Earth history that's really important in understanding life, for example, is how large impacts, large objects from the outer solar system came into the inner solar system and brought with them important light elements like carbon and sulfur, essential building blocks for life and also potentially water. So I think the reasonable thing to imagine is that water came from a bunch of different sources, from, from original accretion as we were coming out of the protoplanetary disk, from cometary delivery and from other objects uh, bringing light elements, including or, or light molecules coming from the, from the outer portion of the solar system. And that water then is, is, is released from the Earth's interior. Um, and we have this fortunate thing of, of a cold trap, right? So we're not losing water from our atmosphere as it, as it is, as it's released from the interior and it, and, and the water vapor rises, we reach temperatures higher in our atmosphere that are cooler and that water precipitates and, re and returns back to the earth's surface. So the principal way of losing water is not through, through that process, but rather through photochemical reactions. Water can interact with, with, uh, with light. And in fact, some of the earliest oxygen on Earth probably came from photochemical reactions involving water and CO2. But Earth is very efficient at, at retaining its water. What was the, the, the first uh, composition of the atmosphere like, and when did, when did the first atmosphere appear, do you think? Yeah, these are, these are great questions, you know, and I wish I could say to you that we all <laughs> agree this is so, but, you know, we're, I'm, I'm part of a, a workshop that I've been helping to put together for NASA over the past weeks. And, you know, there's so much debate and controversy, and the further back you go in time, the less we know, right? We don't really have, we have these zircons, and we have some areas of preserved rock from that Haiti in that first 500 million years, but we don't have much of a record. And so we have to conjecture, and that's really the fun part of it for me, this idea of trying to speculate on things that we have limited data for, and it challenges us to find more data, but it also requires that we do numerical simulations using the laws of physics and chemistry and, 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 and basic principles, fundamental principles that would allow us to make inferences. And so imagine that you accept the zircon data and we had a liquid ocean, um, and, and, and imagine that the that the sun was not very bright. It was 70% of what it is today. Well, the best way to keep liquid water then is to put a lot of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. And so the fact that we had an early atmosphere is quite remarkable because it's, it's very likely that we didn't have a very strongly developed magnetic field at that time. Magnetic fields shield planets from the stripping of their atmospheres from by the, ionic part, by the ionized particles that come from the sun. And so a magnetic field is, is, is an important part of understanding habitability in terms of retention of an atmosphere. And so uh, it's not clear when our magnetic field developed, but be that as it may, it's pretty clear from the liquid water evidence that we had a relatively thick atmosphere that was rich in greenhouse gases. Now, there would have been a time where people imagined early in Earth history that the primary greenhouse gases were CO2 and methane. We know from studies of the modern Earth and the concerns about human impacts that these are gases that we think about all the time, particularly carbon dioxide. The best guess now is that the early atmosphere was rich in nitrogen from volcanic release and carbon dioxide from volcanic release. That CO2 would have been a natural constituent of Earth's interior that would have been released as a volatile, as a gas to the Earth's exterior. The idea of methane being present on the early Earth, that's really sort of fundamentally changed. And 
And that's, that's really important because the early models, the famous Miller-Urey experiment for the origins of life, their little primordial soup where they generated amino acids in a bell jar, those imagined, those scientists imagined a very reduced atmosphere that was rich in ammonia and rich in methane. The general feeling now is that it was not reducing like that. And the reason for that is something that we've talked about already, that Earth developed into a much more today-like state, of much faster than people imagined. And so the core differentiated from the mantle and the crust early in our history. It brought with it a form of iron that left the iron in the outer portions of the Earth more oxidized. And so there is this view that the, the outer portions of the Earth were quite oxidized and, and, haven't, and that hasn't changed much over Earth history. So Some can debate you, about that, so, but, but that's the popular idea. So can you define uh, what you mean by reducing an, an oxidized an oxidized atmosphere? Sure. So reducing an oxidized that has this this term that we refer to as redox, and it's this basic idea of transferring electrons. A, a, a redox reaction or an oxidation or a reduction is the transfer of of electrons. And so when something is oxidized, it's stripped of electrons. When something's reduced it inherits an electron. And the Earth is filled with these redox couples where one thing loses its oxy- uh, loses its electron and another thing captures an electron. And, and so an atmosphere that is, is, is reducing uh, tends to be f- filled with these compounds that do not readily strip electrons. And so methane is a reduced gas. Ammonia is a reduced gas. Oxygen is a wonderful oxidizer. It strips electrons and other gases do that as well. Carbon dioxide is an oxidized gas. It was generally accepted, it has become generally accepted that the earth was was much more oxidizing than Miller and Urey imagined back in the 1950s. And so the composition of the atmosphere that they that they conjectured was probably not right. And so methane has been more or less taken off the table, but just recently, within the past year, you're getting it straight from the presses. There is this new idea that because of the large and frequent impacts of extraterrestrial objects during Earth's early history, that there could have been delivery of metallic iron, much like that that we have in the Earth's core, which is quite reduced. And that metallic iron could have led to a reducing phase where these gases like methane could have been favored. And so there are models now that suggest that there could have been pulses of methane following impacts. Um, And so there could have intermittently been a greenhouse gas combination of CO2 and methane. And importantly, putting methane in the atmosphere also gives you ways through photochemical reactions to generate organic compounds that could have been the prebiotic, the initial building blocks of life. And, uh, and, and just imagine that most of what kept that ocean liquid, it kept us warm, even though the sun was less bright, was carbon dioxide. So a paper appearing earlier this year in the Astrophysical Journal Letters notes that oxygen is the third most abundant element in the universe after hydrogen and helium, and is essential for all forms of life on Earth as a chemical basis of respiration and as a building block of carbohydrates. It is also the main elemental component of the Earth's crust. However, oxygen didn't exist in the early universe. It is created through nuclear fusion reactions that occur deep inside the most massive stars, those with masses roughly 10 times the mass of the sun or, or greater. How much oxygen was there on Earth in the interior? You mentioned carbon dioxide. Obviously, there's oxygen there. It's tied up in, in these earliest compounds. Did most of the oxygen come from our interior, or, or did it come with water from, uh, from asteroids? Well, if you want to talk about oxygen as an element, it's everywhere, right? As you say, it's incredibly abundant, not just in the, not just in the universe, but certainly on our own planet. And now much of that oxygen is, is tied up in, in other compounds. Um, and so these minerals that we take for granted the ones that are on the seafloor, the ones that are in the continental areas, these silicate minerals all have lots of oxygen in them. And so there is a tremendous amount of oxygen that's tied up within rocks. That doesn't do life much good, and it's not telling us very much about life, but there's also a lot of oxygen that's tied up in carbon dioxide and water. And so the the earliest possibility for generating, and what we really want to talk about if we're going to talk about this history of life, and the idea of finding life on other planets is O2. We're talking about 
diatomic oxygen, uh, a free gas that abounds in our atmosphere. It's 21%. We're not talking about the oxygen within the rocks. And so it's possible early in Earth history, uh, we know this to be so actually, that some amount of oxygen would have come from the photochemical breakdown of carbon dioxide and water. And certainly that's happening on planets throughout the universe. The vast, vast majority of O2 in our atmosphere is related to biological production. And that's something that came much later in our history. But the, so even though there was a lot of oxygen in compounds, there was very little within the atmosphere or the oceans um, as O2. And so the, the best guesses are now that the, the first photosynthesis on Earth was something that we call anoxygenic. And so it's the idea of in the presence of light, it's photosynthesis, taking carbon dioxide and producing organic material, producing sugars, but doing so without releasing oxygen. Um, and we, we don't know um, with any kind of conviction when oxygenic O2 producing photosynthesis began, but our group puts it back as far as 3 billion years ago. Uh, some groups would put it back further, other groups would make it younger. The point is that there was at least a billion years of Earth history where biology was not producing O2. And so the organisms that would have thrived in that early world are ones that don't require oxygen, the anaerobic organisms. And then the evolution of, of aerobic life is a much, it's all old, but it's a much later chapter in Earth history. So, so in other words, you don't think there was a mixture of anaerobic and aerobic life on the early Earth, on the earliest not Earth? In the, not in the Hadean. Probably not if I'm going to make a guess at this, probably not until 3 billion years ago. There are models that allow once oxygen production begins biologically, and we actually have chemical data that support the presence of these things that we call oases. So the atmosphere would have been very low in oxygen. The deep ocean would have had essentially no oxygen, but there could be patches of the surface ocean that had enough oxygen to support aerobic life. And it's, it's very reasonable that, to imagine that that happened by by three billion years ago. But we have very, very strong constraints that the atmosphere um, lacked any kind of oxygen probably until about 2.3 billion years ago. That was that, that oxidation of the, of the atmosphere is an even younger phenomenon. So we went through a period of, of hundreds of millions of years where life probably started to produce oxygen, but it wasn't accumulating in the atmosphere yet. But we do believe that the earliest putative microfossils are in the Pilbara? You know, again, that's the exciting thing about this, right? It's an evolving field. There are data from 4.1 billion years ago from those same wonderful zircons from the Pilbara that um, based on carbon isotopes, and that's this idea that life, it, it actually partitions. It, it has a preference for a certain mass carbon atom versus another different mass carbon isotope atom. So carbon 12 versus carbon 13. We know from looking in the modern ocean that when CO2 is incorporated into, into living biomass that there's a very strong preference for the lighter carbon isotope. It's a wonderful biosignature. It's a wonderful signature of life. And there are carbon inclusions, little graphite inclusions within those zircon grains that suggest that photosynthesis doesn't have to have been oxygen producing, but they have been occurring at 4.1 billion years ago. And so the, the question is why, uh, what caused the, the shift uh, kind of to a, to a, aerobic form of photosynthesis because that is a majority that's that represents the majority of photosynthesis on earth right it's the majority of photosynthesis on the earth because this condition that i'm describing of having these oxygen free waters in in the shallow portions of ocean um that's pretty uncommon um so i can take you to lakes lakes do it better um in the black sea which is the world's largest oxygen free portion of the ocean today uh, we have this happening. It's happening down at about 100 meters where light penetrates deeply enough to have this anoxygenic pathway occurring. But there are people who think that early in Earth history, when the ocean was mostly free of oxygen, that that anoxygenic pathway may have produced much of the biomass, much of the organic matter in the ocean. Other people think that oxygenic photosynthesis evolved early and produced much of the organic matter in the ocean. How that all occurred and when it occurred is, are matters of great debate. We're using genomic techniques, molecular techniques, to try and pinpoint the antiquity of these pathways. Much of them point to anoxygenic photosynthesis being a precursor of oxygenic photosynthesis. 
But I know people who have spent entire careers and retired without really figuring out how photosynthesis evolved. And it's a and it's a really a critical question because it's one of the things we ask ourselves, are we likely to find a planet, an exoplanet far beyond our own, where photosynthesis developed? And if you look at the, the pathway of photosynthesis, it's remarkable the many steps that are involved. Well, why don't you it's give remarkable. us a, if you could briefly I, I, give us a, a parenthetical parenthetical definition of photosynthesis. Everyone, you know, learns about it in, in elementary school, but to refresh our memory. Well, photosynthesis very simply is this idea of taking carbon dioxide and producing reduced carbon compounds from that. Um, and so in particular sugars. And so it's, it's, it's starting from inorganic compounds using energy from light and a, and a very complex array of pathways and steps involved in the process to ultimately have a product that is is organic matter, um, the, the, the you know the, the the ingredients of life, and and that's that's how the world works today, right? We have many different forms of what we call primary producers. Algae in the ocean are a dominant form, but I'm looking out the window at trees here. They're able to through primary production take carbon dioxide and fix that and produce their biomass. We're heterotrophs. We don't do that. I always say to my class, wouldn't it be nice if I had to eat lunch, all I had to do is go outside and stick my arms out in the sun. I have to eat the thing that ate the thing that was able to participate in photosynthesis. <laughs> and so there would be this progression. That's in an interesting of way of looking at it, yeah. Of, of, of these primary producers and then the development of heterotrophic pathways that took advantage of of the organic materials that are then degraded. You know, we use these fancy terms, but what we're talking about in heterotrophy is just consuming, degrading, bacteria making a piece of wood rot, or you and I eating a cheeseburger. That's, we do that, we respire, it's the process of respiration. We take in oxygen and organic material and we release carbon dioxide. But the primary producers are taking in carbon dioxide using energy from the sun and, uh, and producing the things that we can eat. Basically. So, how big a role did uh, cyanobacteria, uh, which uses photosynthesis, um, play in the oxygenation of Earth's early atmosphere? Well, that's a, that's a great question too. And so, today we have eukaryotic life, so more complex life than the prokaryotes that are cyanobacteria. And so much of the oxygen would be produced in the surface ocean by algae, a variety of algae, um, things like diatoms and others, depending on what portion of the ocean you're in. On land, we have plants, we have biomass everywhere, which is producing lots of, of, of oxygen. The best feeling, the best guess now is that the vast majority of biological production of oxygen early in Earth history was from bacteria and specifically cyanobacteria. And so when we talk about the earliest biological production of oxygen, we're talking about the earliest origins of cyanobacteria. And I work with scientists who use these, uh, these molecular clocks, these genomic techniques to be able to, through you know, extant living organisms, get the antiquity of, of, of the ancestral lineage. lineage. And, and the, 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 those, those kinds of very independent studies are suggesting this great antiquity for cyanobacteria as well. Other people would disagree with that. These are all sort of moving stories. But it, it, it's sort of lining up with the molecular indications of early cyanobacterial origins and the geochemical evidence that oxygen was being produced by, by 3 billion years ago. So what about the history of the uh, great oxidation event, uh, which caused the uptick of, of a large amount of oxygen in our, in our atmosphere? What, what prompted it? Was it simply scaling up with the rise of bio, uh, with cyanobacteria? Well, so that's um, another great question. There are some people, not very many, but there are some people who would say that cyanobacteria, these important photosynthetic organisms that were the f first massive producers of oxygen, that they evolved at the GOE. And so it was an evolutionary step that cyanobacteria appeared and that they um, and that they t they tip that balance by producing lots of oxygen because remember we're coming from a world that was was free of oxygen. Not only was it free of oxygen, but it was loaded with these again these reduced compounds. And I'm sorry for keep using that I keep using that term, but but things like methane and hydrogen and certain forms of iron that would react with oxygen as soon as it's being produced. And so what they imagine is that it was this reducing world and then evolution developed this ability to produce large amounts of oxygen very quickly. 
Most people don't accept that. Most people think instead that biological production by a cyanobacteria, as I've mentioned before, began perhaps as early as three billion years ago, maybe even earlier than that. And so imagine that there is now life producing oxygen and it maybe is building up in the surface ocean that could be even supporting the earliest aerobic organisms, those that need oxygen, that are respiring in the presence of oxygen. Um, but somehow that oxygen that's being produced is not being um, released into the atmosphere in any significant way. Now we know that there wasn't much oxygen in the early atmosphere and, and, and almost everyone agrees with this because of some really interesting story that developed again within the past couple of decades. It's been a very exciting time for earlier studies based on sulfur isotopes. And, and I know isotopes are very difficult to explain and I'm not gonna do it in detail, but there are basically these signatures of something called mass independent fractionation that are related to photochemistry again, UV energy from the sun interacting with sulfur compounds that come out from volcanoes that impart a very specific, very diagnostic signature of this process um, that is, is enhanced by the absence of ozone shielding, absence of oxygen in the atmosphere, and it also is preserved. And so we have this smoking gun for a very low amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. And some of the estimates are that it was 0.00001% of what it is today. Remarkable. And so that was all of Earth history until about 2.3 billion years ago. 2.3, okay. So, it, so at 2.3 to 2.4 billion years ago, we for the, first, for the first time see the loss of this mass independent fractionation. Again, a fractionation that requires for its production. And again, a fractionation is a differentiation among different isotopes, different masses of, of atoms of a given element. And they just have different neutrons and they behave differently under different chemical and physical and biological processes. And so, so, the, so, so the, the record shows that, that this mass independent fractionation is well preserved until 2.3 billion years ago, at which point it disappears and it never comes back. And so we call that time period the GOE, the Great Oxidation Event. And most often now we, we put our finger at the point where that sulfur fractionation goes away. But I'm going to be honest, there are there were many classic workers who were already developing the notion of a GOE, looking at things like mineral grains that today would break down like pyrite, an iron sulfide mineral. If I put a piece of pyrite on my patio in the oxygen rich atmosphere, it would break down in matters of weeks or months or years. And what is but pyrite? Early, what is pyrite? Pyrite is just an iron sulfide, full oh, gold. Okay. Every, every, everybody knows pyrite, but it's not stable in the presence of oxygen. It's, it's a reduced mineral. But early in Earth history, stream deposits were filled with these rounded grains along with the zircons that represent pyrite that was weathered out of rocks and transported and not oxidized. So that was an early signature of, 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 of an oxygen-free atmosphere. Soils that were present at that time suggest based on their chemistry and even their colors that, the, that there wasn't much oxygen in the atmosphere. If you go to Northern Arizona today, you see all these beautiful red rocks. And if you go to the desert of Australia, you see beautiful red soils. Those are classically a signature of having lots of oxygen in the atmosphere. And, um, and so, we don't see records of that until about 2.3, 2.5 billion years ago. And the sulfur really put, put, put a nail, like drove a spike at the 2.3 to 2.4 billion years ago. What that means, short answer, is that probably biology was producing oxygen for hundreds of millions of years before it accumulated in the atmosphere. And that's given rise to a whole field of, of inquiry about the, the idea of how you could buffer, how you could take oxygen that's being produced and, and consume it as quickly as it is being produced so that it's not allowed to build up. And then something fundamental happened to 2.3 billion years ago. The data don't suggest that it was suddenly a big spurt of cyanobacterial activity. Um, there are a lot of other ideas that have to do with tectonic processes, the nature of gases coming out of volcanoes and their ability to consume oxygen, the composition of, the, of, of continental crust and its ability to react with oxygen or not. Um, but it's a very ripe field, um, but it's, it's safe to say that, that the general opinion would be that, that oxygen was produced, it was consumed, and then, and then there were suggestions of brief rises, what we call whiffs of oxygen, transient events as you get towards the GOE, and then eventually the balance was tipped where oxygen production um, exceeded the ability of, of Earth processes to consume it. 
and then the atmosphere became oxidizing, became oxygen rich. And, and we have this notion of that it may have actually risen to very high values, something we call the oxygen overshoot, and then settled back, it relaxed down to low values in a time period that's called the boring billion that we can talk more about. The earliest for the transition to an, to an oxygenated world, so to speak, is at the end of 2, uh, 2.3 billion years ago. Is that right? At two, three, two, three to two, four. But then there were two upticks uh, subsequent to the GOE, 800 million years after, and then one uh, 450 million years ago, approximately. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, so there's a second. It, it, the the early history of oxidation or oxygenation is commonly treated as two steps: the GOE and then something <coughs> that's called the Neoproterozoic oxidation event, and that's not perfectly well constrained, but it's placed roughly at about 800 to 600 million years ago. It's also coincident with tremendous diversification of eukaryotic complex life and with the first appearance of animals between 600 and 700 million years ago. And one of the great fields of inquiry right now is trying to understand the relationship between rising oxygen and the development of complex life, including animals. So there is this idea now of a third step that happened um, actually much later in Earth history than people might have guessed because by the time you get into the Paleozoic, you have rocks that are filled with fossils, all sorts of animal records, great diversification events that happened very early in the Paleozoic that, that require oxygen. And, and, and when, so is it, when is the Paleozoic? The Paleozoic started at um, about 540 million years ago. Oh, okay. And it ended it ended 200 and some million years ago. So, it, But that is the period where where animals really take off. It's not when they first appear, but we have this idea of the Cambrian explosion and something that's also called the Great Ordovician Biodiversification Event, where many of the modern phyla first appear, animals that you would recognize uh, because they have living relatives today. A lot of that takes really takes off in the Paleozoic. And oxygen is required for that. And so it's uh, it's been only in the past couple of years that we've been trying to understand how oxygen rose in the Paleozoic because it probably wasn't high all the way through there and what triggered these biological innovations. And could the deep ocean have stayed anoxic while the surface ocean was oxygenated? Um, clearly there was oxygen in the atmosphere, we know at that time, um, but the deep ocean was probably not. And oxygen probably continued to play an important part of, of evolution, um, of driving evolution well beyond um, that 500, 500 million year, uh, 540 million year beginning of the Paleozoic. Let's briefly talk about uh, the oxygen level, you know, globally in, in a planet's atmosphere and in, in, in particularly Earth's atmosphere. Um, right. right now, it seems that uh, the, the amount of oxygen in our atmosphere is pretty fine tuned. When you get into more recent times, like the Paleozoic, we can rely on fire. Um, we can look at charcoal records within rocks and see evidence for combustion on, on the Earth's surface. There seems to be a minimum value of oxygen that's about 16% of the atmosphere. Today it's 21%. If it gets too high at like 30%, then there is such a high level of combustion that it would be hard to sustain biomass on the planet. Um, and yet we know that we had it. So there was this window between 16 and 30 that people play with. But the period of time that I'm most interested in is when it went from those high levels, between those high levels and the vanishingly small levels early in Earth history, the so-called middle chapters of Earth history are the boring billion, roughly two billion years ago to one billion years ago, where complex life first appears, um, the end of that chapter ushers in the beginning of, of animals, and we really don't know how much oxygen was in the atmosphere at that time. We know that the deep oceans probably didn't have much oxygen. We know that there were at least patches of oxygen in the surface ocean, maybe heterogeneous and, and maybe varied through time. But we don't really know very much about the atmosphere. And the estimates for oxygen in the atmosphere have ranged from 1% to 10% of what we have today. My group um, has this team, NASA team, that I'm leading with, with, with a wonderful group of others. Um, have suggested that oxygen may have been lower than that. We've used um, a, a, a chromium isotope technique um, that has to do with how how chromium behaves in the weathering environment of soils and how that material ultimately ends up in the ocean and how we understand its coupling to other elements like manganese. And it's a complicated story, but you can you can model and calibrate and you can look at modern systems and you can do experimental work. 
And our guesses are that oxygen was actually really quite low. And there are a number of different things that suggest that during that time period. And so that raises this critical question of if oxygen was low, did it stifle the development of eukaryotic life? Eukaryotes appear, multicellularity appears, crown group organisms appear. In other words, organisms, algae that are, are, are related to algae that we can look at today. So there was a lot going on. And again, eukaryotes but, are, are, for the listener, are, are what? So eukaryotes are, are more complex organisms. They have organelles and they have cells with nuclei. We're multicellular eukaryotes. Multicellular. Prokaryotes, yep. right. They don't have to be. They're single cellular eukaryotes, right? So multicellularity is another advance in the progression of complexity. Um, and there are even today many single cellular eu eukaryotes, but they have much more complex cellular structures. As I've covered in Forbes, oxygen is the, the best element in the periodic table to harness uh, energy. Absolutely. Uh, and, and why is right. that? Well, it, it, because, you know, again, it's, it's, energy is about electron transfer. It's a very strongly oxidizing compound. In microbial life, we can look at the energy that's derived from different possible metabolic pathways. So breaking down organic matter by bacteria in the presence of oxygen versus other compounds. That, that can happen. By far, this oxygen-related process is the most energetic. And so the simple way of thinking about it is that oxygen-related processes, oxygen-related respiration, heterotrophy, is, is very, very energetic. And so, you know, in, in a way, I think we sort of argue past each other when we have these discussions because, because nobody challenges the idea that, that animals uh, require oxygen and that, and that aspects of animals, the energetic processes like moving around on the surface and swimming and predation and burrowing into sediments and sexual reproduction, that all of these things require oxygen. And, and even size, largeness is something that seems to require oxygen because of the surface area to volume relationship. You know, if we, if we look at life as most people think of it as animal life, then certainly those early evolutionary steps required oxygen, probably appreciable levels of oxygen, at least within the surface ocean. But the first animal life on Earth, as best as we know, were sponges that were very small and living on the bottom and based on experiments with, with modern analogs, um, probably didn't require very much oxygen. The, the appearance of animals can also have an effect on, um, and complex life can also have an effect on oxygen. So animals can help oxygenate their worlds. Um, so we have to think about, you know, it's a chicken or egg, which came first? And is there a feedback? Is there a rise in oxygen that developed the complex life that could then further develop the oxygen? Um, and these are the things that we're exploring right now. But let's uh, step back for a minute. So, but the bottom line is, from what we know now, oxygen is a great candidate on, on any planet. If it's an Earth-like planet, if it has water, as we, you know, if it's a, if it's in a habitable zone for for life to evolve. But if oxygen were not available, what would be life's second choice as a prime source for respiration and metabolism? Is there a viable alternative? Oh, sure. I mean, the Earth has taught us that, right? I mean, the the, the first half or, or more of our own history was anaerobic metabolisms. Uh, one of the earliest is the is the uh, production of methane. Um, there are also today vast portions of the ocean that don't have oxygen that are supporting heterotrophy respiration reactions. And so they use, rather than oxygen, they use things like nitrate and sulfate. They use other oxidized species to drive their reactions. Remember, it's all about electron transfer. You need something that's oxidized, that's accepting an electron. Um, that is um, that then can 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 break down that organic matter that can oxidize it. So it has to strip the electron and accept it. But you and don't so you don't. But you don't agree that oxygen is the most efficient. It is absolutely the most efficient. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. But it does. It's not a requirement. Uh, so, for example, sulfate. I mean, I hate to use all these chemical terms, but sulfate is SO four two minus. Um, it's the mineral gypsum. If you were, took a bucket of seawater and you evaporated seawater, you would start to get salts out. And the first salt you would get is calcium carbonate. The next one you would get would be gypsum, calcium sulfate. Sulfate is the second most abundant negatively charged ion in seawater today. 
And so one of the things that we study is how sulfate accumulated in the ocean over time. But what we know about sulfate is that it's um, because it's so abundant that it drives a lot of respiration. It drives a lot of life in the ocean, microbes that are using sulfate rather than oxygen to break down organic matter. And so there are very strong indications that sulfate reduction um, was already present on Earth three and a half billion years ago. So there was already a pathway of respiration um, that didn't require oxygen on Earth long before aerobic metabolisms may have developed. Um, similarly, there are suggestions of, of, of nitrate, um, which is a, a, a NO3 minus, that, that um, go back maybe, two, maybe three billion years ago. So these other pathways of respiration have very long ancient histories on our own planet. But let's, so any planet, any planet in the universe could could perfectly thrive um, in the absence of oxygen on, on anaerobic, oxygen-free metabolisms. And so when we think about looking for life on other planets, we use O2 as a potential biosignature, but that's just one of many. Uh, methane is similarly viewed as a popular biosignature, and that only, uh, that only occurs in abundance and persistence in the absence of oxygen. So we devote equal attention to the kinds of biosignatures, gases in the atmosphere that could um, occur in the absence of oxygen. Would we recognize life in, a, in an atmosphere with low oxygen? We absolutely could. So methane is a popular idea. There are nitrogen compounds like nitrous oxide, the related production from life. Uh, carbon monoxide is also viewed as a potential biosignature. There are many, many different gases um, that, that people focus on. Our group in particular thinks about the balance between methane and oxygen. Um, and so if you found a lot of methane around the planet, you would get very excited. But you also would have to be very cautionary about how excited you would get in the same way that you would be if you found oxygen. Because for essentially everything that we can name, there are abiological processes, pathways that also produce them. So oxygen in the atmosphere on Earth is related to biology, but there are certain planet-star relationships, particularly planets around M-stars, where the photochemical breakdown of carbon dioxide gives you huge amounts of oxygen, and it has nothing to do with life. Uh, one of the signatures that it has nothing to do with life is that there's so much of it. Um, also, you have the planetary star context. You can look for other gases like carbon monoxide. There are ways of, of addressing that false positive. But to simply say, I found O2, therefore there's life, is wrong. And of course, uh, for the listener, M stars are the red dwarf stars, which uh, we're, we lie in a sea of, of red dwarfs, and red dwarf stars are ubiquitous and the most abundant uh, type stars That's in the right. universe. But they are not the, the uh, Valhalla necessarily for, for life uh, because they, no, they're not. they come with a lot of problems. Uh, they, they do indeed. But, um, uh, they do indeed. And we would love to look at uh, G-type stars, uh, planets around G-type stars and their habitable zone. That's absolutely right. But there is a ubiquity of M, of M stars and there's a lot of attention paid to them because a lot of the observations will be uh, uh, on planets around M stars. But methane um, is, you know, there's vast production of methane through biological processes. There are a number of different pathways by, with, by which methane can be produced on Earth and, and presumably on other planets as well. But there are also abiological processes, something called serpentinization, which are interactions between water and, and rock at the, at the right temperatures that can produce methane that has nothing to do with life. And so it's a, you know, it's a challenging field. One, we have to develop technology to be able to identify the gases around those atmospheres. But then by looking at our, the history of our own planet, start to understand the sources and relationships of these gases. Um, and so if we see methane, um, you know, what would it be about that methane that would tell us that it's biological or not biological? I'll give you one example of a, of a classic biosignature, and it's called the methane-oxygen disequilibrium. It's something we've talked about already. Oxygen is an oxidizing gas. Methane is a reduced gas. And if you put them together, uh, one's going to win out over the, other, uh, other, over the other. They react. And so they're incompatible. And having them present in the same atmosphere is a disequilibrium because they're out of, out of equilibrium. It's an instability. And so Carl Sagan and others suggested a long time ago that looking at an atmosphere that had both of those gases might very well suggest that you have the rates of production of them through bio that, that could only happen through biology rather than, than geological processes. 
similarly, if you look at our own Earth history, um, we we almost certainly had tremendous amounts of methane in, in the early, in, not in the Hadean, but the period that followed that. And 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 there were a lot of things that sort of worked against methane at that time. There was CO two that would have reacted with it in the atmosphere. There was a there was not much ozone shielding, so so UV destruction of the methane would have occurred. And the very idea that you had a lot of methane at that time could very well argue that you need the high rates of production that can only come from life rather than planetary geological solid solid planet processes. So these are the kinds of arguments that we have to develop, and that's why we we look back at our own planet to develop those quantitative understandings of these interrelationships so that we can interpret the composition of an atmosphere around an exoplanet. Would we uh, be able to say something conclusive about finding low amounts of oxygen in a planetary atmosphere? Well, remember the planets that we've talked about that are producing lots of abiotic oxygen are producing lots of it, like multi-bar levels, huge amounts of oxygen. Um, and and, and, the, and the, the photochemical processes that produce oxygen around our, on our own planet, around our G-type star, produce vanishingly small amounts of oxygen that you would, that you would never observe. And there, so there is sort of a sweet spot. And, and I think we always imagined that Earth was going to be perfectly in that sweet spot for much of its history. And what my group has actually shown is that that, um, before the GOE, oxygen would not have been detectable. Um, And in the period that followed that, where people imagined 1% to 10% of present atmospheric levels, people thought that it would be detectable. But our geochemical records suggest that it was lower than that. And so we have actually suggested that oxygen... Um, may not have been detectable in our atmosphere until something like 800 million years ago. You know, that, so that's hundreds and hundreds of millions of years beyond its first biological production would oxygen have been detectable in our atmosphere. Were you to be looking at our planet using technology like we have today? And what the, and so it's given it, it's given rise to this notion of a false negative that right. we could have had oceans that were teeming with life. Um, but you wouldn't have known it from the composition of the atmosphere. And the, the percentage uh, that oxygen represents in our atmosphere, what, what percentage today? Today? It's yeah. 21%. 21%. And uh, yeah, 800 million years ago, you think it's been pretty much the same? No, I don't think. I think it probably rose at 800 to maybe detectable levels, but we really don't know. Remember, it's really hard to know exactly how much was there. We have proxies that suggest that things became more oxygen-rich, but how much in the atmosphere was was in the atmosphere is really really hard to know. It's possible that it was very very possible that it was detectable at that time, and it's it's it is there is some hope even if you think about that preceding period, this thing I keep calling the boring billion, which is not anything but boring. That's a term that has some an interesting history, but it's a fascinating time period of a kind of stability of low production and low oxygen and low burial of organic matter because ultimately oxygen rises in the atmosphere through photosynthesis and the burial of the organic remains. Otherwise, the organic remains just decay and consume oxygen. So you have to bury organic matter. And so it, it, you know, it, it looks like during that time we had this sort of baseline of muted activity. Again, eukaryotes were developing and, and organic matter was being produced and buried, but oxygen just doesn't seem to have risen very high. And um, and so the O2, if we're correct, might not have been observable, but it's possible. And the, again, this is the way the thinking goes, right? It's possible that there were high enough levels of, of ozone, O3. Now, the ozone is the shield that we all know in our atmosphere that protects us from ultraviolet radiation. Ozone requires O2. And so it's possible that there was enough O2 to have enough ozone. And the advantage of ozone is that it's very easily detected, relatively easily detected spectroscopically. Um, and so we have made the case that the next generation of telescopes should have, have a certain bandwidth when, within the ultraviolet that's optimized for detecting ozone. Right. Because ozone might be a better target than O2. Okay. So we're coming to the end of the podcast, but uh, just a two or three more questions. Of course. What puzzles you most about Earth, Earth's early history? So, you know, I'm still puzzled fundamentally about the relationship between oxygen and life. I'm still fundamentally puzzled about how much oxygen there was during those early chapters. I'm still puzzled about how we can best learn from Earth to develop tools for looking for biosignature gases around exoplanets. 
But if you were to ask me one thing that I could just barely say anything about, in ter- and, and really very few people could, is still about the origins of life on our own planet. And so I've been working with a group. Um, it's a part of the research coordination network um, system within NASA. And it's called Prebiotic Chemistry and Early Earth Environments. And what we've been trying to do is to bring together the prebiotic chemists who think about the very beginnings of organic molecules that could ultimately assemble into life and try to understand how those compounds were generated and how they eventually developed into something that might be called life um, within the framework of what the earliest environments were doing. Some of the models require land masses during a time period when people didn't imagine that there were continents. Um, some of them require reduced atmospheres where people thought there, that was the case, then wasn't, and then wait a minute, maybe it is. And so this idea of trying to integrate a wide array of disciplines to get a kind of holistic view of those various earliest, very earliest environments and how they may have, have favored or disfavored the beginnings of life, including our early impact history, is, is really fascinating for me. And so at this stage of my career, it's wonderful to be able to learn something new every day about a time period that was so essential. And it ultimately informs our search for life on other planets. If we know that the earliest conditions on Earth that favored life for X, Y, and Z, we can infer planetary histories uh, for exoplanets. We know what the star is. We know the life of the planet. We can imagine where they are in their own life cycles. And we might be able to speculate whether they had those same early conditions that favored the beginnings of life that we had on Earth or something analogous. So whether it's even worth looking at that place. What goes through your own head when you're out in the field prospecting through samples of rock that are literally billions of years old? Well, the the first thing we do, and we've alluded to this earlier in the discussion, the first thing we do is try and find rocks that are going to give us an honest report. And so it is very hard to find rocks that are easily dated, that don't have these overprints that we keep talking about because the rocks have been buried and uplifted. Remember, we have a tectonically active planet that has been active for billions. When that started, it's debated, but it's been billions of years of mountain building and and seafloor being subducted and continents colliding. And all of these things are offenses to the preservation of those original ocean chemistries and rocks. And so the first thing we do is we look at those rocks and we say, are they going to give us any kind of fidelity about um, any kind of hope of trying to extract out original conditions in an early ocean? Even modern weathering is a big problem. That's a big problem in the Pilbara. It's a very old surface and the weathering profiles go down many, many tens, even hundreds of meters. And so one of the things that we very commonly do is we go to the field and say, this is amazing, but what we really need is drill core. And so many of the samples that we use, we've been able to put together funding from various agencies and foundations to be able to go in and not drill for oil or not drill for, for minerals, but to drill cleanly and collect rocks with minimal risk of contamination that are deep enough below the weathering horizons and places where the tectonic history has been less severe and bring up those, really, they're like you know nuggets of gold in terms of the, the kinds of samples we need to be extracting these chemical records and biological records. Are you humbled by the fact that you can actually hunt for Earth's earliest secrets with rock specimens that you find with your own hands? Uh, I am always humbled. It's amazing to, you know, I mentioned early on this fourth dimension, like anybody who really wants to get into the things that drive me, drive my passions, you have to think, you have to put a whole nother kind of mindset in, in, into your into your uh, standard way of processing that that uh, that things that happen over very long periods of time can give us an extraordinary history. When I teach, teach evolution, I say, you know, a lot can happen over four and a half billion years. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it's humbling for me to imagine how much time it is that I'm walking through. We talk glibly about 10 million years or 20 million years as being a short interval, but that's huge amounts. Humans have only been on the earth for anything human life for you know, a couple million years. So we're talking about vast portions of earth history. And so I, so I'm, 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 I'm completely humbled that we, that we're able to do this. And, and, you know, some, I, I, I come from a background actually from my PhD of working in the modern ocean. And when I talk to oceanographers who have such an extraordinary array of samples and analyses at their disposal, they can collect seawater, they can collect sediments that hasn't been affected by all these processes. They collect, can collect the waters within those sediments 
and they can make incredible measurements and all the things that I'm talking about. They can work to the nth degree because they can collect the same money. They can collect microbes from the same samples and see what microorganisms were driving these reactions that I'm talking about. And they say to me, how could you ever work at a time where you know so little, where the rocks have been altered and they may not be well dated and you don't know rates and you don't have any sense of how much time has passed moving from here to there. And my response, and this is consistent with that sort of humble or humility, is like, how could you not want to do that? Why would you not want to ask the most important first order questions of when something began? When for the first time did we become this? How did what we have today start to become that back those billions of years? And so I'm fundamentally intrigued and humbled by the idea of trying to extract information from rocks that don't give it up very easily. So, Tim, uh, do you have a, a way that listeners can contact you to comment or to learn more? Probably the best thing, to be honest, is to, is to send me an email. And I, you know, I'm pretty good about responding to those. And if it be, starts to become overwhelming, then I'll set up a Slack or something like that. Uh, but right now, I do almost all, my, almost all of my correspondence by email. So, as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Timothy Lyons, thank you for helping us all get a better handle on our Earth's earliest beginnings. Well, thank you, especially for the opportunity to share the things that excite me so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>